Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of Have to Be a Grown-Up, The Sisterhood, and my very first novel, Insatiable, A Love Story for Greedy Girls, is coming on the 11th of February 2021. It's available online and from bookshops, and there is a limited number of special signed editions available from Waterstones for your book listeners to pre-order. Huge thank you to everyone who has pre-ordered. It is the very best way for you to support the podcast. Next week, we'll be announcing the winner of the Books to Nourish auction, raising money for Fair Share UK. It means so much that so many of you supported the auction and bid to be on the podcast, and we can't wait to record the special episode. For now, keep an eye out for news at bookstonourish.wordpress.com and do visit fairshare.org.uk to find out more about how you can support vulnerable children. We'll include a donation link in the show notes. Today's guest, Mike Bridal at The Word Icon but he is a writer who has undoubtedly changed the landscape of contemporary British fiction. He's written for the page and the screen. He's a prolific novelist, and we have all been reading him addictedly since his electric 1993 debut, Trainspotting. It's Irvine Welsh. We talked about his brilliant new book, The Seal Club, a trio of novellas by Welsh, Alan Warner and John King, about the Scottish writing scene, and how Irvine might have been responsible, in part, for the death of the Oberon War. Firstly, I was curious about whether in these times we're living in, have your reading habits changed? Are you reading differently or more or less? Um, probably more, uh, but, but um, I find my concentration isn't as good as it used to be. Uh, I think there's, there's a distracting element about just in the ether, basically, that's kind of... Uh, so. I've been, you know, the writing's coming a bit slower and the reading's coming a bit slower, but I've been reading more. I mean, I've not had the TV on at all since COVID. And I've just been reading, basically, and listening to music the whole time. So it's been really good that way. I've been, re- I've been reading a lot of books about kind of economics and, um, you know, all this sort of um, kind of where are we now, what's happening stuff. And that kind of, then when that gets a bit depressing, I just go into, go back to reading novels, basically. No, you mean it's tricky to get that balance between feeling the need to be informed and I think when so much is completely beyond our control we want to delude ourselves into believing we can control it by informing and informing and informing but 
I just want to escape. I've been, um, I read the Catholic Chronicles and it was just deeply comforting um, to be in the Second World War because right, it was yeah, yeah. obviously, you know, tragic and difficult and painful, but also really boring. This is so boring. There's, I mean, this whole COVID thing, just, I'm over it now. It's just too boring to talk about, you know? And it's just that kind of thing that it's like, it's red or black in the casino. Whatever you do, you lose. COVID, the house wins, COVID wins, basically. And everything you do is going to have crap consequences. So, I mean, all you want is consistency. Just take a pass, stick to it and all that, and we'll get on with it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I can't, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying escaping as well. You know, I've been, um, started on Alan Warner's new novel, which is set in Sussex, and it's just in its in the 70s. Um, and it's just not, you know, it's just his descriptions of the of the countryside and just, you know, what what's happening. And, you know, there are just, it's just really beautiful. It takes you right out of all this kind, this nonsense. I've finished, I've just, I've been reading uh, the Michael Faber book, the the, the Crimson and the, the, just, you know, the big Victorian one. What's it called? The, the Crimson, Crimson and the Petal White. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, you know, it was just a bit too, it was too big um, a read at the time. I thought this is, I'm not, a, but it's perfect for this environment because um, a lot of the background noise is gone, you know, so you can concentrate. Well, you, I know you, you can't, I mean, I find it hard to concentrate, but you can immerse, you can sit with something over a long period of time. So uh, what is that book? Is, that, is it like a gothic? The lead character is a prostitute in the Victorian era and it's kind of just, it's just after the Jack the Ripper. Era. So it's not like a kind of um, a sort of kind of murder mystery. It's it's it's, it's very um, it's just very evocative, very rich kind of written novel. I'm about um, I think it's it's about eight hundred nine hundred pages long. Though. I'm about kind of hundred pages and really enjoying it. I do think there's something now, especially really reassuring, almost about knowing you're in for a long haul that you're not gonna run out of book as you said time for those books that before would have just seemed a bit daunting and a bit overwhelming yeah i want to read uh underworld dondolillo again i think it'd be a great book for this time you know when i finished with uh alan warner and michael faber we'll get back into that i'll read it again um it's one of the few books i've read more than once i don't really i don't really like kind of um going back to, to books again i tend not to the only exception is Ulysses. I've read about five times now because the first time I didn't understand the word of it. Um, and the second time, you know, it's, uh, I kind of just started to not see it as a, you know, as a, as a sort of story, but just um, see it as a bit of travelogue really across Dublin and just kind of trip on the language of it. And I got much more out of it. And every subsequent time I've got more and more out of it. Um, uh, every kind of decade I've lived, I've almost read that book, you know, so, um, but generally, I don't. I just, you know, I can't, I'll, I'll read things that, I, that um, I want to move on to the next thing, and I don't tend to. I don't tend to follow writers very much. I, t- I tend to kind of be arrested more by the theme of a novel and what it's about. You know, I'm a kind of dust jacket browser, um, and then I'll pick up something from that from there. Take it home. That's interesting. I want to come back to that, but I'm curious about what drew you to Ulysses that very first time. What point in your life did you think you'll have? Were you aware of it as an ambitious book? Because I feel as though that's something that's synonymous with being a difficult read. I think I'd read um, I'd read Alistair Gray's Lanark uh, because when I start when I started to you know the the whole route for me to get into reading was. Um, basically through the the novels of Evelyn Waugh, which I inherited from. Um, 
my, my uncle, who was a fireman, who did an open university course, and I got all his books, basically. So I kind of got into Evelyn Waugh from there on. So I did a, you know, went through all the, the English literature kind of stuff. I kind of backtracked into, you know, the classics like the, um, Jane Austen, the Brontes and all that, and then kind of um, moved forward into the contemporary stuff, like, you know, from Kingsley Amos on to Martin Amos and Ian McEwan and Julian Barnes, and then found all this great Scottish writing on my doorstep that I didn't really know about. Um, you know, like kind of James Kelman and Alistair Gray and Janice Galloway. Uh, and through reading Gray's Lanark, um, I think somebody had compared it to Ulysses because it was a big ambitious kind of book. You know, it's nothing like it actually, but, um, but it, made, you know, it piqued my interest and I, I kind of read, I picked up Ulysses and it was very, very difficult for me to, to follow it basically. It just didn't have any kind of um, traditional story structure in that sense. Um, and I read, but there was something about it that I quite enjoyed, you know, and I, I thought I'll maybe go back to this when I'm a bit more, um, when I'm a little bit um, less kind of set in my ways really, because I saw very much, you know, I wasn't really into experimental fiction as such. It was like, uh, it was very much, to me, it was like, I just wanted a story with a beginning, middle and end. Uh, and then, you know, basically, you know, through Bowie, I'd almost kind of wanted to get into the beat writers like kind of uh, Burroughs and Ginsburg, Kerouac and all that. Um, and so I did all that. I got into American fiction and through there, I kind of got, you know, I got into the whole idea that a novel doesn't need to, a novel can be anything you want it to be, really. There's not really any rules, but um, if you break the conventional rules of storytelling, you've got to have a good reason to do it. You know, it's yeah. got to be something. And it can only be really a bit, I mean, one person writes The Naked Lunch or like Burroughs, you know, stuff like, you know, and is really exhilarating, but everybody doing it would just be a mess. You know, there'd be no, you know, there would be no sort of, there'd be nothing to kick against. There'd be no novelty of it. But it really, it really made me kind of reading these kind of books made me much more open to the idea that it doesn't necessarily need to be a, like a linear plot line. And, you know, uh, and it was kind of, it was quite influential to me as a writer as well to start to think in that way that um, something can be thematic, it can be character driven, it can be atmospheric. It doesn't necessarily need to be plotted in that sense, you know, so. I suppose that you know, Ulysses has given me something different in every sort of um, every time I've picked it up in every decade because I suppose I've been different. I've been mm. And I guess the more you change as a writer and reader, and everything you read is probably giving you a different lens through which to experience Ulysses again and That's something true, to yeah. something to get out of it. It does, you know, it's great because it does. Um, one of the things that reading the book kind of is is made overt in my own thinking process is that you're never finished at all. You know, you're never finished as a writer or reader. You're never complete. And you're never, you know, you're never complete as a kind of learning machine. Mm. You know, that's really what we are. You know, we're, we're kind of learning machines. And you're tr you're striving to, you know, to you, you get something more out of it in every, in every phase, you, you know, in, yeah. in every phase you're in, basically. Something I felt very strongly when I read your novels for the first time was the permission to pay attention to this like array of stories and I think sometimes the literature that we are given to read misleads us and makes us think a life has to be very grand to be worth writing about and there are certain details that are worthy of observation and others aren't and I love Evelyn Moore very much and I wanted to go back and talk about him as well but even the sort of you know in terms of 
class in terms of the love stories and the sort of, you know, the patterns and the, the drama of it and the details that are worthy of attention and in the hands of the right writer, you know, absolutely anything is. You know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a thing, it's a thing about anything, about any kind of, um, any kind of fiction, any kind of um, genre of fiction. It's like music, you know, the, the very best in that genre is always going to be good. You know, and it's like it might not be your personal thing. It might not be kind of um, something that you that you really instinctively vibe on. But there's no denying that it's um, that um, you know I could I could name a dozen writers who write in a certain way and who write it from a certain kind of genre and perspective. Um, and it's not the kind of thing that uh, I really vibe really on. But I do admire it. I do admire the skill and um, the you know and what they bring to to the whole thing. And I do get a lot out of it. Um, Conversely, one of the things as a writer, uh, what I love, I, I love to to sort of, um, and it happens quite a lot, and it's it's quite liberating when you you pick up a book that everybody is raving about and think it's you know a lot of people think is great, and you read it and you think so this is actually pretty crap. It's not that good, you know. It's a sort of um, there's a kind of whole um, you know there's, there's there's all sorts of different reasons why. You know, it might be a, a book that's just hits some kind of zeitgeist and comes of age, and then you think, well, it's not really good. This character isn't convincing. This storyline isn't convincing. This is, you know, um, and that's very liberating as a writer because you always think I can do better than that. You know, most of the good books are just intimidating because you think to yourself, fuck, I'll never be able to write like that. So it's great when you get one that um, is really sort of given all these accolades but isn't that good I mean I have a terrible compulsion which speaks to nothing but my own insecurity where I've sort of frantically got to google and like there must be someone who agrees with me there must be someone else who hates it as well but then um I've been talking about this book on the podcast a lot I think it's out in the US and I think it comes out in the UK in January um Luster by Raven Leilani. Um, it's her debut and I think she just won the Kirkus Prize and it has been hugely hyped, but I believe deservedly so. And my reaction upon reading that was very much, I just want to give up. I never want to write a yeah, sentence yeah. again. I'm very depressed by its brilliance. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. Just, I think it's like kind of, um, sometimes great writing can, can be demotivating, you know. But and and bad writing, particularly when you know, sort of um, kind of well praised bad writing can be really kind of yes, you know, this is great. I can do better than this. I mean, yeah. I really want to ask you uh, about those two. If there are any brilliant books that you have felt momentarily demotivated by, and also what are the the very hype books? Say hello. Ah, this everyone likes this. It's kind of it's fleeting. I mean, it's like um, you know, it's, one of the books that. Um, when people ask me what book do you think you would you like to have written that you haven't written, I always say the Da Vinci Code because I wouldn't have to bother about writing anything else. <laughs> then, you know, not even think about. You know. But it's not that great a book. You know, it's not it's not a particularly brilliant book. No, but, it's know. a it's a retirement book though. Um, yeah. I mean, do you think if you had written the Da Vinci Code, say, you would still be writing? anyway because it's what you do and what you want to do yeah i mean i can't i can't stop i've got you know i've always got loads of books and stories on the go sometimes all at once so just type away until one project could even be a screenplay it's usually it's usually a, a you know it's usually a book but sometimes a screenplay or a, a teleplay or um and i'll just or a stage play and i'll just let one of them kind of hit a critical mass you know if it's a novel it's usually but it's usually over, when you get over 20,000 words, you usually know that it's going to be a, a book, basically. Um, 
So I'll just go with it when it gets to that um, level. So there's usually about a big load of unfinished ones that are there, you know. Um, and sometimes they end up getting cannibalized and put into something else. And, you know, so, but, so it was all, I'm always doing something and um, I'm always on, uh, if I'm on, I don't drive, so I'm always on public transport. I'm always sitting in the corner of a train or a tube with a laptop kind of tapping in and getting descriptions of people from the tube and all this kind of stuff. It's a rich source, although I guess it's um, that's been harder now. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, one of the, it's I think in some ways it's, it's really good. I mean, you can sit on the circle line now and there's hardly anybody on it, you know, so you just sit on the circle line and go around. And um, the only people that are, that are actually take the train now are essential workers and kind of um, and strange people like myself. You know, so you're looking at all these other kind of weird people. So you know, and um, you're getting descriptions of them and typing away. And then you can, you know, you can find uh, the the thing about London now is that a lot of the coffee shops have kind of shut down and all that. So you can't really, it's it's not you, you can't just sconce in a corner now and just type away all day until the proprietor gets gets sick of you. But um, could sit in the park and type, you know, but now it's like the weather's getting to the point where you have to stay indoors. So you, I'm getting more, I mean, I'm, I'm between Edinburgh and London all the time now. I'm back at Edinburgh right now. So I've got, um, my place here is all sort of, you know, I can, I can just go to my place in London and go to my place at Edinburgh. And it's like, uh, from King's Cross to Waverley, like two minutes walk to King's Cross, two minutes walk to Waverley. And, you know, four and a half hours later, you're in the, the, the other place. So that's kind of, um, I've got a nice system worked out. You mentioned before about um, finding all these sort of really great Scottish writers when you were first sort of falling in love with books and on that journey. Are there any emerging Scottish writers that you're really excited about? They don't really emerge, do they? They just go buying the first book and it's either it's either massively successful or usually it's not and you never hear from them again. And sometimes the ones you never hear from again are brilliant and it's such a, a sad thing, you know, they, they don't really get their careers sort of developed like we did back in the 90s the kind of publishers you know i was talking to this you know alan warner and john king and i doing the seal club um we we're talking about this that how we were kind of looked after in a way by random house and cape and you know we had a we, we were sort of brought through you know and it wasn't really because we were in this little um the, we were all published by cape and we're in the, it was like this little enclave within Random House and it didn't really matter if it wasn't make turn you know turn around huge profits. It was almost like um we'd be subsidized, you know, that well the capers and I mean, I was lucky I I kinda of used to make quite a bit well, still do make quite a bit of money from books, but um it's like generally Cape authors didn't, you know, they're like poets. They were sort of um one or two of them would do okay and the rest of them were subsidized by the 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 big kind of crime novel of today or whatever you know so it was quite nice it was a bit like um when i was doing music and i was signed to creation records um the the dance imprint eruption and we were doing all this dance stuff and noel gallagher came in and said like am i subsidizing these bastards now you know so it was true you know, it was like this kind of um it's a, it was a bit like that with uh with kate but they would you know but they would look after writers back then and i think now it's much more it's much more profit centered and everything. Every, everyone is a sort of has to turn in a, a kind of, um, a, you know, a certain kind of profit. And there's, there's a marketing strategy for every book and a demographic. It's a bit like film, writing for film and, you know, you're writing to marketing holes. So there's not a, a lot of latitude for, um, for young writers now. 
but um, I mean, there's some great there's some great writers, and it's like I kind of feel strange about calling somebody that's forty emerging a young writer, but they kind of are as young writers. Yeah. So somebody like I mean, like uh, Jenny Fagan, I've just read her new new uh, novel Lock and Booth, and it's absolutely amazing. It's like uh, what I love about it is that um, first, what I love about it is really really long. And it kind of brings back ambition into the British novel. You know, it's like, so because again, it's like she's not writing into any sort of marketing hole. Anybody will tell you that you can't write a novel now, if, you know, like 800 pages. It's just crazy. But she has done, and it's just absolutely amazing and riveting and brilliant. And um, it's a bit, it's like a kind of, um, it's a bit like Lanark in a lot of ways, Alistair, Alistair Gray's book, but it's very much um, a sort of whole feminist kind of working class reclaiming of Edinburgh as a as a city and it's you know it's there's so many there's walking you know you, you walk on cameos from William Burroughs and all this kind of stuff it's just um a nutty book you know and all these can in Chinese triads and it's, it's um crazy crazy book but absolutely brilliant I mean, fabulously executed I think it's going to make a, a huge splash when it comes out next year I'll look out for that. That sounds really, really dazzling. Skipping back to Evelyn Moore, I think that um, Decline in Fall is one of the funniest books ever and a real sort of almost like a masterclass in how to write a joke because I think his sense of kind of rhythm is so good. Well, that's what I got as well from him. The characters were, were incredibly vivid. And um, the thing that I got, I mean, I started off with the, the Guy Crouch back trilogy, you know, the Men at Arms um, War trilogy. And... What I really got from that was, um, I mean, it's totally outside of my social milieu that I'm writing about, but the universal thing that I picked up on it, and I think kind of inspired me very much in my own writing, was the sort of, um, was a camaraderie, but the secret schadenfreude and competition between men, basically. You know, and it really has that kind of down to a, you know, down to a sort of tea. This kind of sort of friendship, but kind of real rivalry and almost kind of tipping over into sort of hatred and sort of love. And it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre kind of concoction. And he really nails it, I think, um, more so than any other novelist. And he does it in a very funny way as well. Mm. He's, a, he's a great humorist writer. And it's funny, it's like, uh, I remember being on um, a flight with, his, with Oberon Moore to um, Sydney Writers Festival. And we're on a long long haul flight we're having a drink and chat and all that and you know Oberon Walt was kind of um you know he was kind of a very kind of snobbish kind of sort of uh, upper class guy and I thought uh I should should I tell him how much his, his father's influenced me because there's no because no 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 kind of relatively underachieving son wants to hear about particularly a posh kid wants to hear about how great his father was like you know. so I so said what I'll do is I'll wait because um, it's really going, it's really going to offend him that I was massively influenced by his father, you know. So I'll wait till he gets a bit obnoxious and posh, and then I'll kind of, then I'll hit him with it. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Then he just went into this kind of traumatized kind of sort of um, slump, and then pretends to be asleep after that, and kind of died shortly after that, actually. So it must have, <laughs> it must have been quite traumatic for him. <laughs> But yeah, no, but but we, he, 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 I'm joking. He was he was a nice guy with a, a good laugh, and um, yeah, I mean it was you know it's it was it was something that um, I got into purely by um, purely by accident. But it's that thing as well, you know. You 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 have to be able to draw from everywhere. You can't let any kind of um, 
sort of preconceived ideas about what is, you know, what constitutes kind of kind of good writing or good literature um, kind of get in your way. You have to sort of, um, you, if you're really, if you're a proper reader, you'll take joy in something from anywhere, wherever it comes from. What is the book that surprised you the most where you took a lot from it without expecting to? It's funny because some, some books uh, are like kind of little time bombs. You know, you don't think they've had much influence on you uh, when you've read them. And then you keep thinking about them again, you know, so it's, it's like, and they, they, they keep kind of coming back on you. So influence is very strange. I mean, you know, it's like you can be, um, you can whiz through a book and it's a kind of virtuoso performance. You think this is great and you feel great about it. And you realize that um, you've not, you've just been entertained. You've not really had any deeper kind of, you know, for want of a better term, kind of artistic or cathartic kind of experience from it. And something that you think was a bit dull and kind of uh, maybe a bit ponderous and worthy, if you stick with it, the rewards, you know, they can, they can bleed through you for su such a, a while to come. I think uh, one, one of the, um, I'm trying to think of the, the books, that are, this is the thing, I just read so much that I f actually forget titles and authors just kind of fly up my head. It's only, it's kind of words and phrases and paragraphs that stick in, stick in my mind. And I think maybe that's, maybe that's the writer in me. You know, that you're always looking for something that you can use or that can influence you or that you can steal or borrow or adapt or amend. Uh, so I tend to think of it more in that way. Especially, you know, what you were saying about not really following particular writers, but looking for ideas that interest you and things that, that draw you to them. Um, I think that's a really important thing to remember. And what you were saying about how years ago... A publishing house not always but did perhaps have more of a tendency to sort of look after and really like develop and bring out their writers and I think there are fewer writers and now it's like oh we're going to publish 600 new writers a week and it's just shit we're throwing at the wall and we're going to see what sticks and, and what doesn't and yeah. I think there's so much pressure now for writers to kind of to be a brand you give so much of your energy and time to you know and basically as a promotional tool you know it's like um but I think this is a, the thing is it's like um Writers, kind of young writers now, they don't really get a space just to be writers. You know, they have to be authors instantly. You know, so they have to be responsible for the promotion and the, you know of their of their work and the promotion of themselves and the promotion of this thing that they're they're doing. And they have to really be on that. They have to be on it through Twitter and Instagram and um, and Facebook. That's not a great thing because you're almost you know being a writer and being an author are just so different thing. You know, they're, they're so different, and it's like uh, you spend a lot of time. You spend a little, the more successful you become, the more you become an author. And you kind of almost think, wouldn't it be great if nobody kind of read my books anymore so I could just write them in peace and get on with it? And, that, you know, and that's a stupid way to look at life as well, because you've got the whole point of it is engaging with kind of yeah. people in the world and all that stuff. But there's something about the, the responsibility that comes with that to go out and promote that's kind of very, um, very wearying and very, um, and, and it feels like, you see every time I do a book tour now and I used to really enjoy them and now there's a, there's a tremendous sense of deja vu you know I'm kind of um, I'm responding to the the same questions and, and the 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 themes um, have been explored you know the, 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 I've explored all these themes and I'm kind of not my head's not really in that book anymore you know what was it I think it was I think it was Ian 
McEwen well, said that you you become a, a sort of employee of a former self mm. when you do that thing, that you know the promotion thing. And I think it's true. You don't really um, you're not invested in it. And the embarrassing thing is that um, the journalists or the um, that are talking to you or the, uh, the, the 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 members of the public, if you're doing a talk in a bookstore or a theatre or something. They'll have a much better idea of the book than you because it's gone from your head and there's nothing, you know, it's like you don't really know, you know. So, and it's for somebody like me who tends to sort of um, focus more on the subconscious and writing, I don't really know how I've kind of come to all these things that I've written about. So, you find yourself um, stunned by your ignorance of your own work. You know, you're sitting there and people are saying, you know, they're, they're saying this is. And they've internalised it and they've thought through it. And they probably know a lot better than you about, you know, as readers do, I think. The readers do, do know more about the work than authors in some ways because they're, they're seeing it from a, you know, I think you're, you're, blind, you're, you're blinded by your myopic view of trying to construct something, you know. True. I think if you're a really focused reader, um, you never stop being a student. And I'm sure that, you know, there are lots and lots of readers who... Who love your work and they want to kind of they see patterns and see subtexts and things and you know and you also you don't the I think you're right it's like you they correct tell you me what's because about, this you know, is it's, your it's world mine but it's like music and you're creating like sixteen different tracks at once in your head and you can't know what they all are consciously and yeah. it's just this you know that's the you need people to tell you thing. you do you need people to tell you what it's about because you don't you won't really know otherwise. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. We'll be back to Irvine soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, Perfect Happiness by Penelope Lively. Frances is struggling to make sense of the sudden death of her husband Stephen, and Stephen's celebrity status makes her life as a widow much more complicated. 
Her best friend, Stephen's glamorous, ambitious sister, wants to guide Frances through her grief while dealing with her own, but there are, of course, complicated family secrets to unpick. This is a quiet book that rules. Lively is such a spare and elegant writer. There's a gentleness and delicacy to her prose that really belies the intensity of emotion explored. She absolutely wins you. One of the most emotionally intelligent and perceptive books I have ever read. Beautiful and kind and moving. Perfect Happiness is published by Penguin and out now. Now, back to Irvine. Do you know that writer... J.T. Leroy, The Heart of the Seat with the Bubble Things, which I think is short stories, but that J.T. Leroy was really a woman named Laura Albert, and they made a film, a documentary called Author, and it's about how she constructed this persona, and that J.T. Leroy is a sort of, you know, very, very damaged young boy who didn't really exist, and I just... I think about that film and that book all the time. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know that story. I mean, it's, it sounds a bit like the... The James Frail story about when he when he wrote something that they, he wrote this um, supposed biography, mm. and he kind of he fictionalized it to the point that um, you know, but it, it kind of fell between biography and fiction, and he, he probably you know it's, it's, it seemed like he didn't realize that he was a fiction writer, you know, and he kind of you know he strayed into fictional territory, and then he wrote the um, the thought, you know, he wrote a follow-up book to it, which was pure fiction and was brilliant because it was like he was just freed from the shackles of having to sort of um, to to kind of write uh, to you know to authenticate kind of things and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, again, that's bringing you know to the the sort of um, the idea that how do you write in other voices? Can you write in other voices? Should you, you know? Should you do you you know you can go from the extreme of um do you have to be do you have to be a murderer to write about killing someone you know that's most of the crime fiction is, is writers are kind of in prison if you, if you follow <laughs> that. so um it's a it's a strange thing you get into all that kind of cultural appropriation um and you get into you know like kind of I mean I, I always cringe when I hear like authenticity used as a term in fiction because fiction is about it's about fabrication. It's not about authenticity. You know, it's like you can try and make the experience of the of the world as authentic as, as you as you like, but you basically are creating a world. You know, it's not a you're you're not taking people into a world that exists. You're creating a world that exists in your head because it's all your interpretation of of that world. It's not you know you're not taking a photo start of it. I mean, I guess there are two tensions at play, and one is it needs to I think feel authentic and be convincing. And that's of the writer's job is to make something that is sort of, even if it's, you know, space aliens, like believable, a sort of consistent yeah. universe, I guess. But the other thing is, why would we bother reading fiction if we want authenticity? Because it's inauthentic in its nature. It's about creating a convincing world that, um, you know, that could exist in the, you know, that can exist in the reader's mind. And it, you know, and it has a set of, um, you know, a set of rules that things that, that, that you know, that, that are, are kind of that are reasonable happen you know it's like um a lot of the fiction you know the if you, if you read a lot of crime fiction i've been reading loads of crime fiction because we've got this um this it's kind of pseudo crime series that's been greenlit for um Britbox that we're working on but um it's like the the you know you get you get kind of high-end stuff you know the, all the scandinavian stuff that's really good um and really psychologically kind of powerful and uh then you get the the lower end stuff, which is the the kind of pseudo James Bond stuff that um, 
the guys that you know the first got has a first class degree in Oriental languages in Cambridge, but is somehow a kung fu expert and a car guy on the streets and all that kind of stuff, which is just nonsense, you know. But it's that, but it's very much um, that kind of white supremacist kind of male upper class mm. sort of model of omnipotent of godlike omnipotence that um, is you know is is imbued in that fiction. So. Uh, when you you read back all these crazy kind of cultural constructs, you know, I'm, I was reading that um, uh, Dashiell Hammett kind of uh, early early sort of um, kind of noirish kind of pre-Chandler kind of fiction, and it's like it's absolutely uh, amazing that the number of every every single page is pouring a drink, you know. He was like, I poured a drink, and you know, she poured me a drink, and I poured it. Yeah, um, let's get a cocktail, and all. Let's grab a cocktail. You know, the thing is, everything. You know, it's like the guy must be absolutely rattars by the end of the first chapter. Like, you know, how could he? You know, how can he actually function? I remember uh, when I was a teenager reading *Tender as the Night*. Very different. I mean, there's a there's a murder in it. Um, a big spoiler. Yeah. Um, but being thrilled by the glamour of it and the booziness of it and that's a book that I try to read every year and I find something different in it every time I go back to it and you know even though and but, oh he makes it very explicit that Dick has a drinking problem Dick is a chronic alcoholic like oh but the party that's, I mean, that, that's to me what that book is about it's about his it's about his wife's descent into mental illness and his descent into alcoholism you know it's that kind of Folly a do thing, you know, him reacting in this way, you know, it's, like, it's, like, obviously it's a cultural thing with him drinking, but him reacting in that way to her kind of um, basically losing her mind, you know, and it's, 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 it's such a dark and sad book. It's, it's, it's beautifully written, so you can't, you know, you another one I pick up from time to time. Yeah. If it touches a little bit on what you were saying about war, that it's kind of about, um, you know, as a, as a lady, I'm not sure. I don't want to point any fingers or make any statements, but about a very sort of maybe a male anxiety about mediocrity and insecurity and this idea that Dick could be brilliant and it's just that that wasted potential and he could blame Nicole and blame the situation, but ultimately it's just a sort of a, a sad evaporation of something. I think so. I mean, I think what, what, you, what you see and what I've seen... Um, you know, the older I've got, particularly amongst a lot of guys who um, come from quite privileged backgrounds, quite and and kind of uh, are, are really bright and very charming, but and have inherited money, but they can't really do anything mm. for some reason. They just, you know, the everything, everything they've needed, they've kind of had in a way, but they've not really had. Um, they've not really had affection growing up. They've been shipped off to these kind of kind of schools, institutions, and and. Um, and it's like they should be able to do all these things, but they can't somehow do them. They have all this, you know, and they and they they're, they're, they sink into this alcoholic oblivion. It's almost like it's a really. I thought it was a kind of when I first read it, it was a strange story, and then it became immersed in these kind of um, bigger kind of sort of bourgeois social milieus and all that. And you and you just see how widespread it is. You know, you see that um, that the class system in Britain and the patriarchy in Britain. It's been so devastating to the to the male bourgeoisie as well. You know, it's it's, it's something that's not kind of often um, sort of explained. It's been and it turns out devastating from the rest of for the rest of us because we you know you you have people now in government who are just from that. You know, they're mm. just damaged guys who've got daddy complexes who were never given that kind of sort of love and they were just shipped off and they were sort of uh, 
and uh, you know they're acting out all this. So, you know they're you know they're acting out. You know they they're being promoted way beyond the level of competence yeah. they're acting out now. You know. So. Are there any books that give you hope, or you think inspire good social change? I like I like ones that are kind of ambiguous. I don't like ones that are saying everything's going to be rosy. Um, everything's going to be um, growing, or, don't, or, or everything's going to be horrible. I like, I like the, you know, the thing, the, the encouragement is in the fact that there's still a little kind of, um, even though it seems to be shrinking, there's still a little arena of choice that we can make. You know, that we can, you know, and, and an idea that what we, you know, that there are still some options open. Um, one of the best books. Uh, I was talking about Jenny Fagan earlier in our looking book. One of the best books about climate change. I read was her second book, The Sunlight Pilgrims. It's basically about this family who uh, the, the snow is coming in and it's getting colder and colder and colder. The temperatures are dropping and they reckon there's a big sort of um, a big freeze coming in. So they, they take this caravan to the north of Scotland and they live in this caravan and the snow's piling up and it's like eventually they get, you know, fewer and fewer supplies and they've cut off more from the rest of the world. and. It's like the the way that the way that it ends is um, is quite amazing because you're waiting for the for the weather to, to thaw and it might it might happen in a couple it might happen in a week's time or a few days time or it might never happen at all you don't know and they're all sitting there and uh, I think this is you know it's like you have a sense of how the world could actually end you know it's not going to end with um, mass kind of sort of riots and shootings on the streets or people being incinerated it's people sitting in the house wondering whether if they're ever going to be able to get out basically oh my you know? god you're and, and so it, right fucking hell but yeah and you see it now with, with the covid thing you know yeah. to me it's like a you know it's like a family christmas it's like you know, <coughs> are we ever going to get out of this madness yeah. but uh, the way that this is described is absolutely brilliant because you don't really know you don't know if it's just a more severe winter or if it's the end of the world god that sounds chilling in every sense it's the hope that kills you <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm a hip supporter, so that's a. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about music books and if there are any uh, biographies you love. Well, I mean, the one I read it's, um, was published by Lee Braxton, who's set up his White Rabbit um, uh, press just to do that kind of thing. Um, is uh, Mark Lanigan's biography from the you know it's like then. Uh, Matt Lanigan from the Screaming Trees biography, um, and the thing about that is it's um, it's one of the it's one of the bleakest books you'll ever read because he's he's kind of um, he's become one of these guys who come from a, a a backwater town, kind of sort of history of abuse and you know alcoholic kind of sort of um, background, and he goes and he becomes a big rock and roll star basically becomes successful kind of rock and roller and that's you know you think that but it's not one of these archetypal my life was saved by rock and roll mm. rock and roll just gave me access to more tools to destroy myself so yeah. it more drugs more heroin more abuse more and he and he kind of becomes you know he's got this parallel kind of rock and roll career to being this bum on the street in seattle and it's like it's absolutely amazing that um the level of um the you know the level of self-hatred and denigration and sort of uh, the sheer brutal honesty that comes from the book it's like, you know it's like uh, and it's like it's that thing you think you you know you, you're actually you're rooting from every chapter you're saying like uh, 
you have to get over feeling bad about yourself now. Please, please, please have this. You know, you've hit rock bottom now. Just come up and have some, give us some redemption. And then the next chapter's even worse. He falls even further. You can't think, I hate it. And at the end, he leaves the end quite, um, quite sort of ambiguous. There's no big declaration that was saved by rock and roll, and this is what I do and all that. But um, he seems to come to some kind of inner peace with himself. But it's, you know, it's incredibly hard one. Um, massively brave and massively kind of strangely uplifting book, but beautifully written and really honest. And uh, it was much more than a rock and roll biography. I don't know if you will have read this book. Um, I'd be a little surprised if you, if you have, but maybe not. Do you know um, that memoir, um, I think it's called How to Murder Your Life by Kat Monell, who's the American no, 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 journalist. No. But what I loved about it is she she wrote she was a sort of like a very like traditional I guess kind of glossy like Condé Nast beauty editor. She got hired for this website Exo Jane that's supposed to be quite disruptive. Ended up being the drugs and narcissism columnist at Vice, and she writes right. really openly and she sort of owns being a bit of a brat. And her family was sort of wealthy and distant. Again, one of those kids. She was, um, I think, her dad started prescribing her Adderall and lots of it when she was like preteen. And her memoir is about being a a drug addict. She um, famously wrote a sort of public resignation letter to XO Jane saying, I'm sorry, I'd rather smoke angel dust than come in and go to work. Um, but it's really great because she says, I'm like, I don't do heroin overmore, but I will take Adderall until the day I die. And she's quite kind of weirdly hopeful, but also very pragmatic about the way she will always have a relationship with drugs. Oh, that's, that sounds great. I'll, I'll check that out then. I was thinking it's all about Eve Babbitt, so I don't know if you've come across her at all. I haven't, no. The, the thing about... The, um, I've, been in the, I've been in America for 10 years, and I've, I've, what in the last 10 years, you know, I, 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 kind of, I got really... I moved away from fiction. I think a lot of fiction writers do, kind of at my age, basically, because you want to, you're drawn to understand the world a bit more, and you want, you know, you want to, you kind of, um, you're basically too old to go out to nightclubs and sort of all that kind of stuff. So you, you, you kind of try to replenish your understanding of the world in a, you know, not so much in an experiential way, but much more in a second-hand kind of way, looking at the sort of. Um, the big thematic issues. So I've been I've been immersed in kind of like um, you know like economics and philosophy and sort of uh, and spirituality, religion, just getting into all that kind of stuff to see what I can unravel from it all. And uh, again, you know, COVID has has forced me back into the novel, and it's been great because you don't you know when your world shrinks, you know, you know, it does. You know, now it's locked in, it shrinks to a couple of streets basically. You know, I've got the girlfriend up the road, and I've got my best mate around the corner in his little studio and that and Tesco's in the other corner and that's it basically now you know unless I can jump on I can get up to Waverley Station and get down to London and it's you know it's like um, it's the same very similar closed thing you know and I find the London and the London and the lockdown is worse than anywhere else because it's usually there's so much going on mm. and you really know the lockdown more you know um but it's it's good for reading you know it's you know it's, it's, it's good to kind of um you you want to escape your confines and uh, and it's in the you know it's in the past it's like you know one of the things that uh, one of the things I think that's killed the novel is a mobile phone. Mm. You read, if you read or read or write a, a contemporary novel and you don't have a mobile phone in it, you think to yourself like um, 
it spoils so much, you know, it potentially spoils so much suspense. If you're writing about any kind of, you know, going back to authenticity, if you're, if you're writing about anything to do with the real world, you know, you have to reference this in some way and it's, it's so tiresome. Um, and that's why, you know, a historical novel, you know, and a historical, by historical now, I mean like a, almost like 90s upwards, like kind of pre-mobile phone yeah. obsession. It's, you know, these are the ones that you enjoy reading. You, you, you get into all that thing as a writer. How, how do I display the topography on the mobile phone? How do I make these conversations seem interesting? We talk about the death of the novel, as people are doing all the time, but uh, talk, you know, put the, put the mobile phone in the dock, like, you know. <laughs> not in the charging, not in the charging dock, in the in the the, de the decommissioning dock. I have a question for you, but it relies on me knowing how to pronounce a Scandinavian word. I'm not completely sure about. So let me see if I can find it. An Icelandic tradition. It is called Dolla Bokaflod. No, I mean, if you, I mean, if you can't pronounce it, I've not heard of it. Right, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is um, an Icelandic tradition where it's about the, the Christmas giving of books as gifts and everyone gets right. a book um, as a gift and they just spend the, those, you know, that Christmas week or three days just sort of hold up reading it. What book would you give as a gift and what book would you most like to receive that you haven't read yet? Um, what would I give? I would probably give, um, could I give one of my own? Is that cheating? Sure, why not? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I just keep thinking royalties and sales and all that, like, as most writers do. So I'd probably give, um, I'll give more, I'd probably give Glue or Marabou Stock Nightmares or Skag Boys. I mean, would, would it depend on who you were giving it to, which one you chose? Yeah, to? definitely, definitely, yeah. But yeah, if it was someone else's book, it would um, it'd be, it'd be one I've finished recently, so it would be, like, maybe Jenny Fagan's Locking Booth. And what would you hope that you were going to open? I'm um, going to put it in a weird box so you think it's a bike or something. <laughs> it's going to be one of these big novels, aren't you? <laughs> um, uh, oh, what would, I, what would I hope for? Um, probably quite a, a sort of... Um, See, most of the, you know, it's like most of the books that I know about I've already read. This is a, the, the, the thing. So it would have to be a kind of, um, it would have to be a surprise book, you know. Uh, yeah, I, I really can't think about that, Daisy, because it's like any book that I, that I would really like to receive I've already read, you know, and it's like the ones that, the ones that I don't know about, you know, if it, you know, if it really blows me away, it's like... Um, you know, it's the, that that's uh, the thing that I'm looking for. I mean, I kind of, uh, I think the last book that I got as, as a present was um, years and years ago from, um, somebody sent me uh, Ned Bowman's uh, Boxer Beetle novel. And I thought it was terrific. You know, then I hadn't, you know, and the funny thing was I met him uh, a, a few weeks later at this literary festival. I'd never heard of him or the book and all that. And the, the book was just great. And I was like, um, and, you know, it was embarrassing because he was a lot younger than me and I was like a kind of fanboy. I thought, this is one of the great novels growing out. You know, it's like, so it was, uh, so that's the kind of uh, surprise that you like. You like to be surprised by a novel. Awesome. I love that mentionitis as well, that, you know, you sort of discover something and then it just keeps coming up. Yes. Yeah, it's great. All right. Well, maybe I'll give you that Cat Marnell book for Christmas. I think you'd like it. Yeah, that would be brilliant. I would love that. Send it your way. I'm really excited about um, Seal Club, which I'm um, I'm reading your your story. Uh, well, the Seal Club is suppose like a trilogy of um, novellas with me and Alan Warner and John King, um, sort of uh, 
Yeah, we just decided that we would uh, we'd do something for these these dark COVID days, basically. And you know, we managed to turn it around very quickly through an independent press that you know, it's John's own independent press. So yeah, no, it was it was great. I was wondering how the three of you came together, and whether as part of that, the writing felt sort of more cohesive because you had two other kind of writing partners to answer to. Yeah, but we're quite different as writers in a lot of ways, but um, you know, we're, we're, we're all published at Cape at the same time and we're, we're all kind of close friends and it just seemed to be the right thing to do, you know, it just seemed to be, you know, I think, because uh, publishing a book is such, usually such a, a solitary experience and uh, when you do a novella, it's quite nice to, to be with other people, to have this, you know, this investment in it, uh, to be a, like a, a daft little gang. You know, it's like being in a band almost. It's just been a, a joyful experience. And normally it's like the writing a book is a, is an absolute joy. It's a wonderful thing. And then when you actually come to publishing it, you think, oh, I've got to kind of go out there and talk about it and all that. I don't know that much about it. Uh, so, uh, and But Alan and John are much better at that kind of thing than me. They actually, they actually seem as if they've read their book or, or their story, you know. So it's kind of... Uh, I have to learn from them and maybe, maybe prepare better, maybe force myself to read the story. But it's like the last thing I want to do when I hand the book in is to look at it again. I never want to see it again. No. I always think when I finish anything, I think it's the poster for End of Days, which is um, not a remarkable film, but it's just that shot of Arnie walking away from an explosion and everything is like behind <laughs> me just whistling. And that's that's my life. That's everything I do. <laughs> Get out. Well, you know, I got... I got it wasn't his finest hour um, because I knew it was going to that film was going to bomb because I got invited to the premiere, you know. And I almost think like um, if I'm getting invited to a premiere of a Hollywood blockbuster because I'm kind of you know I'm B to C list and that kind of thing, you know. I would never get invited to like Terminator <laughs> premiere. Right? The end of days suddenly it comes through the post like um, you know Arnold Schwarzenegger and Gabriel Byrne would love to see you at the premiere. And I think oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I agree, but that is um, charmingly self-effacing. Huge thanks to Irvine. The Seal Club is out now. Buckle up for the return of the Begbie family in Irvine's story, The Providers. As you'd expect, it's darkly comic, uncompromising, painful and thrilling to read. And you can see Irvine in his new Sky Art series, Offended, where he explores public outrage and controversy in the arts. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. It helps new listeners find the podcast. Find a list of all the books mentioned by Irvine on acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Dorothy Parker. I'd like to have money and I'd like to be a good writer. Those two can come together, and I hope they will, but if that's too adorable, I'd rather have the money. See you next time. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 